Good morning. Let's go and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that you will join us here with your spirit and your presence, enlighten our minds, fill our hearts with your love, and may we grow closer to you and practice your methods. All we do, we pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson number five in Proverbs. The title this week is The Blessing of the Righteous. The Blessings of the Righteous. And the memory text is Proverbs 10.6, and it says, Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but violence covers the mouth of the wicked. And I thought, well, what does this mean? It's not just what it says, but what does it mean? Blessings upon the righteous. Why are blessings? Why are blessings on the righteous? See, which level are you thinking at this? At one level, people think, well, because if you do what's right, then God uses his power to bless you. He, 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 you know, he pours things out on you. Uh, he does things to uh, you know, in, in, divinely intervene to make good stuff happen. Another view is, well, um, righteous means those who are actually right. Right in heart with God, right in heart in motives of love, restored to at-one-ment or at unity with God. Why is there blessing in this being right or being set right? Because God's the source of life. And when you're connected with him, then that's how things grow and develop, and that's a blessing. The greatest blessing? What is the greatest blessing you could think of? If you could have one blessing, what would the number one blessing be that you could have in your life? Having a heart like Jesus. Having, yes, having a heart, character, mind like Jesus, being restored to fullness like This is the blessing of the righteous. When you're set right, you are blessed because you're restored to righteousness like Christ. Why? And it says the blessing is upon their heads. Why upon their heads? Minds. There you go. It's the metaphor for the minds. That's exactly right. And why does violence cover the wicked? There's one view, like that, well, if you do bad, God's going to use his power to, to inflict punishment and destroy you. So if you do bad, he's going to get you, like our governments will. We're going to hunt down and kill those terrorists. He doesn't have to do it. Oh, he doesn't have to do it. You'll do it yourself. You'll do it yourself. So what happens, just metaphorically, what happens to a person who steps off a speeding train? What happens to someone who smokes or does illegal drugs? What happens to someone... Someone's heart, mind, and character. What happens to the heart, mind, and character of a rapist? Not the person who's the victimized, but the rapist himself. What happens to their heart, mind, and character? Yes. The activities that deviate from God's design are destructive to the deviant. It's violent. It destroys. Why do you think it says covers the mouth? So what does it mean, covers the mouth? Next question. What comes out of the mouth of the wicked? Lies, falsehood, deceit, self-promotion. And what do lies do? Break the circle of love and trust. And broken love and trust results in fear and self-centeredness, which result in more destructive behaviors. So that's why the mouth of the wicked are always self-promoting, deceiving, uh, twisting. It wasn't me, it was a woman you gave me. See, Adam was no longer righteous at that point. First paragraph says, As the title suggests, this lesson looks at the blessings of the righteous. The Hebrew word zadik zadik, um, for righteous is the key word in our text. Zadik also translated justice from which it is derived appears in the introduction of the whole book. The Proverbs of Solomon to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice. What the book of Proverbs is telling us is that wisdom is righteousness, and righteousness means to walk according to God's commands, to walk in faith and obedience to what the Lord has called us to be and to do. Righteousness is a gift, one that comes from God. The opposite is folly and unfaithfulness. Wisdom is justice or righteousness. Folly is sin or wickedness. What are the implications to our theology 
that the word translated righteous is the same word translated justice. And not only is this true in the Hebrew, which the lesson just told us, same word is translated righteous and justice. It's also true in the Greek. Dikaio, dikaiosune is the Greek, which is righteous or justice. What is the implications for us that this one word in the original Hebrew and Greek, when we translate into our language, we split it into two words. What happens when you come to a place where you go like this? Is, is it, it, could it lead to a fork in our theology? Could it lead to two theological trunks or trees? Yes, you had a hand? I was just going to say, in, in their mind, they couldn't be separated. There's one of the same. Yes, in the mind of the people, there's one word means the same thing. But we do, when you, when you typically hear the justice of God, does the first thing that come to your mind, the righteousness of God? Typically, historically. Now it does, because we've worked to really retrain our thinking. But historically, justice connotes, yeah, some type of a legal approach to things. That's, that's because of our English language, where our legal justice system has a Latin base, and we use a lot of those words. Um, like justice and so forth. Part of justice seems to be condemnation. But if you go to court and you're right, I mean, you, you are, you end up being justified. You got recompense. You got um, a decision in your favor, so to speak. Then justice seems pretty good. So righteousness is a condition of being right. That's what it is. Righteousness is the condition of actually being right. Right in heart, right in mind, right in character, right in relationship, right in motives. And justice is the same word as that. That's what justice is. It is the process of from that right relationship, from that right heart, from that right motive, from that right desire, that you then live right and do right. Because right doing is pleasing to God. That's what justice is. Doing the right thing because you are right. The just are those who do right. And the right thing is defined by God's law of love. That's how we know what the right thing is which is God's design for how things are actually constructed to operate in his universe, not a code of imposed rules. So the book of Proverbs then is an instruction on what is right, in other words, on how things actually work in this universe, on the way things are designed to function. That's what Proverbs is trying to teach us. It's not a book of imposed rules. Look at the wisdom of Proverbs. It's all about cause and effect. All those Proverbs you read, you notice there's always a cause and effect thing going on through the Proverbs. This is how things are built. This is what the universe works and looks like. Thursdays. I'm going to jump to Thursdays lesson to continue on this righteousness justice theme. And it talks about the reward of the righteous in Thursdays lesson. What would you say the reward of the righteous is? Normalcy. I like that. Normal C as defined by original design, design, which means Eden. Not normal C when we look around today and say, well, that's normal. This is not actually normal. This earth is abnormal from God's design. So I like that normal C. So righteousness then would be being restored to God's original design. That would be righteous. I like that. Second paragraph states, though we are sinners... By faith, we can be justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What does it mean, though? What does it mean to be justified? Do you understand this from level four and below in our moral development? Remember levels one through seven? Do you understand justification from level one, 
reward and punishment. Level two, marketplace exchange. Level three, social conformity. Level four, law and order. Or do you understand it from level five and above? Love for others, design principles, God's purposes. How do we understand justification, being justified? Level four and below, it's a, it, it create, I'm going to just tell you, level four and below is fiction. It's a legal fiction. Or you could call it a metaphor, but metaphors are not actually reality. They're, they're stories designed to point to reality, but they aren't the actual reality themselves. When Jesus gave the metaphor of Lazarus and the rich man, or the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, this was a parable or a metaphor designed to teach a reality that our eternal destiny is decided here and now by the choices we make, not at some point after this life, but it wasn't actually the reality in the way the universe worked. That was a fictional story. It was fiction. So too is the legal, penal metaphor that is so ubiquitously taught in Christianity. It's a fiction to teach a reality. How is it, how is it taught? Here's how it's taught in the legal view. Justification is the legal declaration of one to be righteous in God's accounting books, even though one has not yet been made righteous. This is the key. They will tell you. You're declared to be righteous by God, Seen to be righteous, accounted to be righteous, even though you are not righteous. This is allowed in their view because Jesus is righteous, and you can claim his legal credits to your heavenly record books if you accept him. This is how it's presented. They make it very convoluted and confusing. You really think about it. If anybody thinking person goes, wait a second, how's that exactly work here? I'm not actually righteous, but God is going to, before the universe, declare me to be righteous, even though I'm actually not righteous. Well, God's lying. I presented this to some theologians, and they didn't like me saying that. I said, but he's declaring something about me that's actually not true. Yes, but it's true legally, because in your record books, you're legally... So God's putting things in his record books that aren't true. It'd be like going to the the doctor with a terminal disease, and as he comes to examine you, you shove your healthy brother in front of you and say, examine him, and whatever you find in his health, in his body, write it in my records. Now, my records will show how healthy... I am because you've recorded my brother's health in my records, but I'm still terminal. This is what they're teaching. So what is it to be justified? Made right. I like this. Made right. Set right. Put right. See, remember the, see the just right? See the connection of the word? Set right, put right, justify to put something back right. When you justify the margins on your word processor on your computer and the margins are justified what what do the margins do they all come into a straight line everything that's out of harmony disorganized set wrong or set right they're rightified if you want to put it that way justified means to rightify to put what's wrong right question in our problem of sin what's wrong that needs to be set right is there something wrong with god and his attitude no is there something wrong with god's law no. Is there something wrong with the human condition? Yes. Ah, so justification, if it's going to be real, if it's going to set what's wrong right, has to be operational in the human being. This is not what the legal view tells. The legal view is setting something right in some legal accounting system in heaven. Setting God's wrath right. Some will put it that way. So, the human species the, the species human was set right in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you understand what I mean by this? Jesus was sinless. 
He was tempted in every way just like we are yet without sin. In every way just like we are yet without sin. And in the person of Jesus Christ, by exercising of his human brain, he lived a perfect life, restoring God's design into humanity. The species human in the person of Jesus Christ was set right with God. That's why it says in Hebrews 5, 9, once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obeyed him. Have you ever thought that language, once he was made perfect? I thought he was always perfect. What does that mean, once he was made perfect? No, he was always sinless. He was always sinless. Adam and Eve were sinless, but they were not yet perfected. What are we talking about? Perfection of character. God can create life. Character must be developed by the exercise of the free will of the intelligent being. So in Desire of Ages 762, Ellen White says, the law requires righteousness, a righteous life. This man has not to give, but Christ came in the form of man and developed a perfect character. This he offers as a free gift to all who will accept it. You following that? Okay. So in Christ Jesus, the human species, humanity, this creation that was created in Eden is eternal and will never die now. See, as long as we have one panda, pandas are not extinct. Because of Jesus Christ, the human species will exist forever. Now, the question remains how many individual specimens will join him because he's offered what he's achieved to us. It says that, he took, that by his death, he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to life, or he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Notice the purpose. He did this for the purpose of restoring us to rightness, that we might become right with God again, be set right with God again. Um, several questions. Let, 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 before I take the questions, let me just fo- follow up with Romans so we can bring this all the way down to our individual experience. In Romans chapter 4, it says, Abraham believed God, and it was cr- in, in the NIV, it was credited, credited to him as righteousness. And this is where they get this idea. They will come. This is their key text for the legal view that he believed God. It was credit. He was recognized. He was declared righteous, even though he wasn't. For my paraphrase, it's Abraham trusted God and was recognized as being set right. Now, let me ask you this question. Which came first in Abraham's experience? Trusting God or being recognized as right, being set right or righteous? Now, what's the natural condition of the human heart after Adam's sin? A heart that is oriented in trust to God or a heart that is in enmity to God? What's the natural condition of our heart from sin? Fear, selfishness, enmity against God. So when Abraham trusted God, that was a change in his heart. His heart, which was against God, distrusting, fear and selfishness, looking for self, was a heart now that was set right in trust with God. So Abraham was recognized as being set right in heart because he actually was set right. He was right. He was rightified in heart. What came first was the actual transformation of his heart with God, and that's why God recognized him as righteous. Yes, in the back. I remember Dr. Carl Kaufman's story of the man who was drinking and smoking and accepted Christ. Dr. Kaufman said he was saved and right with God right then. How would Dr. Jennings describe that man's condition? What, what does smoking have to do with, uh, with trusting God? 
<clears throat> Where does it say thou shalt not smoke? Now, as we grow in our maturity with God, we might want to re- take care of the spirit temple and do things that are healthy for the spirit temple. And a person growing in their maturing with God may stop and give up behaviors that are destructive like this because they understand as they step up the, the developmental ladder that this is out of harmony with God's design. But the saving relationship starts with trusting God. And that person trusted God. And his heart was now in a trust relationship with God. That's why his, so his heart was set right. It's about character and a change of heart motives from fear and selfishness to love and trust. That's the big change. Think about this metaphor. In the Bible, what was the metaphor, the physical metaphor for sin? Yeast. Leprosy. Physical, yeah, yeast was too. Physical, I'm thinking of leprosy at this point in time. Now, when did a high priest or one of the priests declare someone clean? Remember what? A leper could not be part of the community. Because leprosy represents sin. Sin separates us from the heavenly family. We can't be connected to them while we're lepers. We we can only be connected when we're declared right or cleaned or so forth. And in the Old Testament system, if somebody had leprosy and was healed, they had to go to the priest so the priest could inspect them and then declare them. Christ healed some lepers and he told them, go to the priest and be declared right or be declared healed. Which came first? The declaring of them healed or the actual healing of them? It's pretty straightforward. This idea that God declares us righteous while we're not is a lie. It's fiction. We have to be set right in heart from distrust to trust. Our heart has to come back to a trust relationship. That's a fundamental change in the primary motives of our heart. After that, when we trust God, it says we open our heart to him. Romans 5, when we open our heart, he pours his love into our hearts. Our heart motives that were fear and selfishness are now love and trust. And instead of acting to protect self, we act to help God and promote others. We're self-sacrificial. The whole, the whole equation changes once we're restored to trust. And then it's just a process of cleanup. It's just a process of continued growth and development in a love relationship with our Lord. Sunday's lesson. asks us to read Proverbs 10, 1 through 7. Sunday's lesson, Proverbs 10, 1 through 7. So let's look at those and we'll just go through each verse 1 through 7 and and see if we can draw some meaning from them. So verse uh, 1 in Proverbs 10. A wise son brings joy to his father, but foolish son brings grief to his mother. And isn't, I just thought, isn't that the way it is? (laughs) Son does something right and the dad goes, I'm so proud, that's my boy, that's my boy. (laughs) Son screws up and he looks at my, look, what's your son do now? (laughs) Isn't that how it works? (laughs) <laughs> Alrighty. So number two, though, so verse two: ill-gotten treasures have no lasting value, but righteousness delivers from death. This is quite profound. So first, first, first half of that verse: Why does ill-gotten treasures have no lasting value? Why? Easy come, easy go. Easy come, easy go. But why? Functionally, why? Operationally, why? Damage your character. Ah, ill-gotten by definition means it's gotten outside of normal design for the way things are constructed to happen. And so, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? So, if you get something outside God's design for life, then you might get that possession temporarily, but you've sacrificed your soul to do so. There is no gain there. You're also damaged in the process. You're damaged exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly right. But then, how does righteousness deliver from death? How do you understand that? What does it mean? 
What does righteousness mean? We just went through it. What does righteousness mean? Back in the army of God. You're the, the branch that was broken off is grafted in. And think if we take a branch and graft it into a vine and the, the life-giving sap and stuff starts flowing through the vine, it comes back to life. It revives. You see, connecting back in our right relationship with a trust relationship with God, we're connected with the source of life. So being set right is what leads back to life. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the, the cravings of the wicked. Hmm. Any thoughts about it? The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry. Let's start with that part. It's not always apparent. It's not always apparent. Well, I think the first question is, are we taking this concretely? Yeah. Yeah. Is this actually talking about physical food, and how do we know? Well... Did Jesus go hungry in the wilderness? Yes. Was he righteous? Yes. Okay, well, maybe this isn't about physical food. Maybe it's metaphor about something else. Well, God, God provides the sunshine and the rain, but it shines on both the righteous and the wicked, according to Jesus. People operating at level two, level two is the quid pro quo, marketplace exchange. You do something for me, I'll do something for you. People operating at level two take passages like this and turn them into Bible promise books. Where if you claim the promise, then you get the reward. But then what happens is they claim the promise and they say it over and over again for 30 days and the reward doesn't come and then they lose faith, God isn't real, and they give up and they walk away. Because they misapply, misunderstand what the passage is about. No one was more, more righteous than Jesus, but he went hungry and he actually said in John 4, 21 through 24, it says, Meanwhile, the disciples urged him, Rabbi, speaking to Jesus, eat something. But Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you don't, that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him some food? Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. Hmm. So, while people may go physically hungry, will the righteous ever go spiritually hungry? Will they ever go without God's purpose in their life? If they're righteous. No. They will always be filled. Filled with purpose. Filled with meaning. And I'm going to tell you, dealing with people who suffer, and I deal with people who have to go through some difficulties and tragedies in my office, those who have a purpose in that, understand a larger purpose, are much more capable of handling it than those who have no idea why, and they they, they view there's no purpose in it. The righteous always have purpose. To fulfill my purpose is my food, Jesus said. So then what about the um, thwart the cravings of the wicked? How does God thwart the cravings of the wicked? Well, it's never enough. It's never enough. So God, what are God's divine weapons? You know, it says in Corinthians, we don't wage wars. The world does. The weapons we fight with are not really. We have divine weapons demolished. What are divine weapons of God? Truth, love, freedom. Big ones. The truth, love, and freedom. So, what thwarts lies? What thwarts coercion? Freedom. What thwarts selfishness? Love. God is to thwart the wicked by replacing lies, fear, and selfishness with truth, love, and freedom in the hearts of the wicked. Every one of us. This is all of our righteousness, filthy rags. All have sinned and gone astray. All of us are wicked in our born in sin, conceived in iniquity. And God thwarts it by healing and restoring us. Unless we demand that he doesn't. 
unless we demand that he doesn't. There you go. Sure. All right. Lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. What do you think it means? That if you see somebody in poverty, it's always because they're lazy. Is that true? No. No. If you see somebody in wealthy, it's always because they're diligent. Is that true? Mm, We can't take this level two again. We want to be a little bit more thoughtful than that. Is this primarily even speaking about earthly wealth? Or is it speaking about spiritual wealth? Is it true that lazy will result in spiritual poverty? If you don't discipline yourself, you don't apply yourself, you don't take advantage of the opportunities given, that you will become spiritually, characterologically bereft of good character traits. You'll become spiritually poor. Yes. Is it also true that if you're diligent in fulfilling God's purpose and applying yourself, you you will become wealthy in spiritual fruit? Yeah. I think this is what it's primary talking about. Who gathers, he who gathers crops in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps during the harvest is a disgraceful son. What's the verse about? Is it primarily about farming? No, it's about fulfilling duty. It's about fulfilling one's responsibility. It's about not shirking what is rightfully yours to do. This is what it's about. We're going to skip six because we already dealt with it in Sabbath lesson. Seven. The name of the righteous is used in blessings, but the name of the wicked will rot. What does it mean? The name of the righteous. In Hebrew culture, what's the name symbolic of or representative of? Character. Character. So then substitute that. The character of the righteous is used in blessing. The The character of the wicked will rot. Oh, does that clarify it for you? Does it make sense now? The character of the righteous will be a blessing to whom? Yes, Wendell. Good news translation for that same verse. Good people will be remembered as a blessing, but the wicked will soon be forgotten. I like that too. I think that, that, that that's a, a, a very applicable understanding of that verse. I like it. Other thoughts? I was thinking along these lines that the character of the righteous will be a blessing to themselves, to others, but if you think Revela- uh, Revelation chapter 14, the third angel's message, Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. What is the glory? How do we give him glory? His work in us. Which reveals what? Who he is. His character in us. That's how he's glorified, by revealing his character in us. So we actually are able to, if you will, bless God by revealing his character in us. We become a blessing to him and his cause. But the wicked rot. The character of the wicked rot which means decay, corrode, destroyed from its own condition. Yeah. Monday's lesson speaks, the lesson speaks how important is the mouth, how powerful and why. Why is the mouth so powerful? From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Yes, so it's a revelation of the, of the, I can't tell you how many patients of mine would be would avoid so much trouble and turmoil in their life if they would remember the lesson that the actions and words of other people reveal that person's character. 
So many people, when they're criticized, when they're run down, when they're rejected, when they're spoken ill of, take it personally. They get their feelings hurt. They, they feel discouraged because they're, they're, they're allowing the, the, the viewpoint of another to infect their mind and they actually trust the judgment of another, the perspective of another, more than they trust the truth itself. They will spend their time not trying to be the healthiest person they can be through God's grace, but spend their time trying to get some significant person to see them in the positive light. I'm too concerned. I'm not concerned about being healthy and leaving other people free to have their own conclusion. I'm concerned about whether this person thinks I'm healthy, whether they like me, whether they value me, whether they esteem me. They don't like me. They're upset with me. I can't stand that. What do I have to do to change their opinion rather than, wait a second, am I actually being the healthiest person I can be? Look to Jesus. Jesus had many people who thought ill of him. They even called him the son of Satan at one time, son of Beelzebub. Did he spend his time being, oh, what can I do to change their opinion of me? Oh, it just tears me up that they think these bad things. Or did he recognize, hey, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. They're revealing their character and the way they operate. If we can learn this lesson, it's very powerful. It really frees us from so much turmoil in our relationships. But also words are powerful because... The, the mouth is powerful because the mouth is like a distribution hub of information. Information that's good or information that's bad. It, it's like a, it's like a com- connecting on the internet to a, a, a site that has a virus. Somebody's putting bad information in and it takes root in your mind, then it can actually change you. Consider how many young people today, and we hear it on the news all the time, get convinced to join various violent extremist groups. How does this happen? By using the mouth to speak words to convey falsehoods which infect the vulnerable, vulnerable minds and ultimately lead them to commit to issue, commit to, to concerns and actions that are destructive to them and others. And it was the words spoken to them that led them down this path. Jesus is the word of God. What would we know about God if it weren't for Jesus, his creation? He was, he was part, he was the way everything was created was through Jesus. The way we understand God's real character is through Jesus. And so Jesus is like the mouth of God, so to speak. Uh, God's version of what you're talking about. Absolutely. No, well, that's right. So in Proverbs it says, The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. How is the mouth of the righteous a fountain of life? You will know the truth, and the truth will... The mouth of the righteous are going to reveal the truth about God, his kingdom. It's going to disabuse people of lies and distortion. It's going to reveal Christ and win them back to a relationship with him where they will be connected to the source of life. The text you read earlier said violence covers the mouth of the wicked. And this one says the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. It's almost like... I mean, I I can see the interplay. What are your thoughts on... Uh, you know the the changing up of the of the metaphor there. Revealing versus hiding, or yes, the mouth of the wicked conceal; they lie, yes. blame, displace, externalize, distort. They lie about sin, its nature. They 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 cover, they um, conceal wickedness by suggesting that sin itself is not destructive to the sinner. God is destructive to the sinner. The sin is just breaking a rule, but the destruction comes from God who must inflict that punishment upon us. So they're covering up the reality and the destructiveness of sin 
and wickedness by telling lies about what it actually is. It wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me. Covering, concealing by their distortions, their externalizations. Let's jump to Wednesday's lesson. I think this is where we have a little bit of, of fun today. Can it also be true that if some of these people want to seem, seem to want to make you think that just talking has no real consequence? But one of the one of the things that I read about um, and an author from an author that was that was highly regarded, uh, I think it went all the way back to the fifties and so on, is that ideas have consequences. That's right. So if somebody starts talking to you and it's just like it's supposed to be all fluff or they're acting like it's no there's no big deal about this, we can just talk about it. The fact of the matter is that those ideas have consequences. Especially on unprepared or undefended minds. Right. You have a defended or prepared mind, a mind that's learned to critically think, a mature mind, a Hebrew says, who's developed by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong, then those ideas have less impact. But for the vulnerable mind, it's quite potentially impactful and destructive. Wednesday's lesson, it says, um, the lesson is about truthfulness versus lying. The first paragraph, it says, philosopher Cicela uh, Boke, uh, has convincingly demonstrated how lying can be harmful to society. She writes, a society then whose members were unable to distinguish truthful messages from deceptive ones would collapse. What is lying? What is it? Telling falsehoods? Is that lying? Well, you guys don't want to answer my questions, do you? <laughs> Partial truth, but not all the truth? Body language intended to deceive? Withholding information with the, with the intention to deceive. Telling something false while thinking it's true. Telling a falsehood to advantage self. Second paragraph, it says, Ellen White wrote, Lying lips are an abomination to him, to the Lord, basically. Um, he declares that into the holy city there shall no wise enter anything that defileth neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie. Let truth-telling be held with no loose hand or uncertain grasp, let it become part of the life. Playing fast and loose with the truth and disassembling to suit one's own selfish plans means shipwreck of faith. He who utters untruths sells his soul in a cheap market. His falsehoods may seem to serve in emergencies. He may thus seem to make business advancement that he could not gain by fair dealing, but he finally reaches the place where he can trust no one. Himself a falsifier, he has no confidence in the words of others. So, it says, lying is an abomination. My question, what is it that constitutes lying? What about telling the truth with the intent to harm? <clears throat> well, well, that's a different question. Okay. okay. I mean, that's a good question, and, and we can talk about that, and it'll, I think it will come out here, and, and let's, let's pick that up at the end of this. But does, it require, does lying require purposeful intent? Is it a lie if one innocently gets their facts wrong? Have you ever gotten your facts wrong? And it was actually a false statement, but you just you, you thought it was true. Is that a lie? Okay, let's be clear about that. So let's look at some Bible examples. Abraham told Pharaoh that Sarah was his sister. Lie or truth? Wait, 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 wait. Wait, 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 wait. Did he say she is not my wife? No. Lie or truth? She was a half sister. Why or truth? Hmm. Rahab stated that the spies were not hidden in her place. 
Lie or truth? Lie. Who was chastised by... Which was more blatantly false? Which was more false? Had no truth in it at all? Well, who got chastised by God? Abraham. Abraham. Hmm. So what makes the difference here? Ah, the intent. There you go. This is where we're going with this. Did you notice... And the, in the statement that we read here from the lesson, it says, disassembling to suit one's own selfish plans M- means sh- shipwreck of faith. To suit one's selfish plans. Abraham lied to protect self based on fear of what the Pharaoh would do and not trusting God with the outcome. Rahab lied to protect others, aligning herself with God and trusting him with what was going to happen. It was an act of trust. Do you know Rahab lied in faith? (laughs) That's why she's in in Hebrews. It was an act of faith on her part to stand up for God and put herself in harm's way. But how mature was she? How much did she actually know about God's methods? This is why you don't see God chastising her for the lie, but you also don't see God commending her for the lie. Well lied, Rahab. Good lie. Good one. You don't see that either. You see God recognizing the motive of the heart for her standing to take action that was designed to be on his side, even though she wasn't mature enough to maybe do it in a different way. At that point, Rahab was kind of working out of fear. The reputation of these people had come to the town, and she said, everybody's heart is melting because of you. And she, you know, looking at the way decisions she could make, I think she saw that God was on their side, so that was a good side to be on. That may be the only level she was at, was doing it out of fear and thinking, I'm going to stick with them. That's probably the winning side. So let's consider the issue of lying in light of the commandments and the seven levels of development. First, is there a commandment that says, thou shalt not lie? No. 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 There's one that says, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Is that not what the commandment says? Who's your neighbor? Yes. Yes. So is there a difference between thou shalt not lie and thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor? Or are those the same? Well, let's look at that. All the commandments are an expression of love. All of them. Take no action that is harmful against God or against man. Thus breaking the commandment in making uh, false statements against someone, breaking the commandment is making false statements against someone, which is not simply against their personal reputation, but also providing them with false information that could injure them. This was what this would be. So those operating at level four and below would approach the commandments, including this one, in a very self-centered orientation. How do I keep the commandments so I don't break the rules? So So no sin is recorded in my record books. So I don't get in legal trouble with God. So I don't do anything wrong. So God can't punish me. This is how they approach the commandments. It's all about what they can do to stay legally right. It is not through the lens of love for God to glorify him or fulfill his purposes. Let's consider another Bible example. And I want you to walk through this story with me. If you want to pull your Bibles out, you can. It's in 1 Kings 22. 1 Kings 22, yes. Before you do that, can I just comment with, I think, what most of us probably grew up with, um, which is more simplistic, do's, don't, rules, whatever, that type of thing. I never could make the story of Rahab congruent because I couldn't, 
it didn't work. Does it work now? It didn't work. And that was always incongruent to me. But that works. It's it's because we try to put everything in a box and and distance ourselves from you know, let's keep it simple uh, rather than it, it, it stays surface that way. Let, let's see if this one comes on a lot. Let's see if you made sense of this one as a kid. First Kings 22. For three years, there was war between Aram and Israel. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went to see the king of Israel. The king of Israel said to his officials, don't you know that, uh, that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us and we are doing nothing to retake it from the king of Aram? So he asked Jehoshaphat, will you go to fight with me against Ramoth Gilead? Jehoshaphat replied to the king of Israel, I am your, uh, I am as you are. My people is, is your people. My horses is your horses. But Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, first seek the counsel of the Lord. So the king of Israel brought together the prophets, about 400 men, uh, and asked them, shall I go to war against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? Go, they answered, for the Lord will give it into the king's hands. First question. Was this lying? And bearing false witness on the part of the prophets? Or if they were sincere and believed it true, would it, would it then not be lying? Just keep that in mind. But Jehoshaphat asked, is there not a prophet of the Lord here whom we can, we can inquire of? Wait a second. Why did Jehoshaphat ask for a prophet of the Lord? Didn't he already say up in verse 5, first seek the counsel of the Lord. So why is he now, after 400 prophets come, asking for a prophet of the Lord? Because he recognized these weren't prophets of the Lord. So when those prophets came, was this an attempt to deceive? When Ahab brought, brought these prophets that were not prophets of the Lord, but claiming to be prophets of the Lord, was this part of breaking the commandment, bearing false witness? Were they attempting to deceive Jehoshaphat? Verse 8. The king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, There is still one man through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad. <laughs> He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. The king, the king should not say that, Jehoshaphat replied. So the king of Israel called one of his officials and said, Bring Micaiah, son of Imlah, at once. Dressed in their royal robes, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, uh, king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones at the threshing floor by the entrance to the gate of Samaria with all the prophets prophesying before them. Now Zedekiah, son of Kenaniah, had made iron horns, and he declared, This is what the Lord says. With these you will gore the Arameans until they are destroyed. All the other prophets were prophesying the same thing. Attack Ramoth Gilead and be victorious, they said, for the Lord will give it into the king's hands. Were these men bearing false witness? Hmm. The messenger who had gone to summon Micaiah said to him, Look, as one, this is what the messenger is saying to Micaiah. Look, as one man, the other prophets are predicting success for the king. Let your word agree with theirs and speak favorably. <laughs> Is he encouraging Micaiah to lie? <laughs> but Micaiah said, as surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what the Lord tells me. Does this mean that what Micaiah says later is from the Lord? Hmm. Keep that in mind. When, we, when he arrived, the king asked, Micaiah, Shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? Attack and be victorious, he answered, for the Lord will give it all into the king's hands. The king said to him, How many times must I make you swear to tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Wait a second. Did Micaiah just lie to him? Why is Ahab stopping and saying, How many times must I swear to tell you the truth? Is there a history here of Micaiah not being truthful with him? 
Hmm. This is a defense when someone asks you to a question to which you have no children do this. You tell an outrageous lie that the other person knows is a lie, and it's a way to not tell the truth. Didn't Micaiah just agree with 400 other prophets? Did Ahab tell the other 400 prophets how, how many times I have to tell you the truth when you tell me I'm going to be successful? No. So, we don't have tone of voice. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> so do you think that this was said in a sarcastic, mocking tone, which Ahab clearly knew Micaiah was not being serious? See, this is very critical whenever you read Scripture that we don't get the tone of voice. But the, the response makes it clear that Micaiah was not speaking seriously to him. Why would he do this? Why would he then say this in this, yep, go ahead, you'll be fine, you'll win, go do it. Why did he say it like this? Is it possible that he's setting Ahab up to, to draw a contrast between what the 400 has said and what he's actually about to tell him? But was it a lie then? Then Micaiah answered, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, These people have no master. Let each one go home in peace. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Didn't I tell you he never prophesies anything good about me but only bad? Micaiah continued, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne with all the hosts of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? One suggested this, another that. Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. By what means, the Lord asks. I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets, he said. You will succeed in enticing him and said the Lord, go and do it. So now the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster upon you. Now, is Micaiah now lying to him? Is Micaiah now lying to him? Then is the Lord sending lying spirits if Micaiah is not lying? Hmm. Hmm. How do we make sense of this? We can ask the same question about the, the, the example you gave earlier. Was Christ lying when he gave the metaphor about Lazarus uh, and the rich man? So what is the question that is being answered by Micaiah? What will happen? Should I go to war or not? What's going to happen? Did Micaiah answer that question truthfully? Yes. That's the question that's being answered. However, he chose to use simile, parable, a Story, he's telling a story. A story, you know, he's telling a story. That's like kind of a euphemism for a lie, isn't it? <laughs> telling a story. But he's, tell, he's, he's telling a story to tell the truth. This is not a truth about how the lying spirit got into the mouth of the prophets. It's a truth that the 400 prophets were lying. Then why would he set it up like this? Why would he speak it like this and attribute it to God that God sent a lying spirit if God didn't actually send a lying spirit? It's what Ahab could hear. Thank you. Who is Ahab actually a worshiper of? Baal. He's a Baal worshiper, remember? Elijah had to confront him and Jezebel. And what kind of a God is Baal? Vengeful. He's a vengeful dictator God, a power God, a power monger. So, if God wants to get a message through to Ahab, 
that Ahab is most likely to take seriously, then God has to take ownership that this lying came from him so that Ahab will realize that it, that it is coming from the Lord. This message is coming from the Lord. And the message was, you're going to go out and fail. You're going to go out and be killed. You're not going to survive. So after he gives this message, the Lord has decreed disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, son of Kenaniah, went up to, up and slapped Micaiah in the face. Which way did, which way did the spirit from the Lord go when he left me, left from me to speak to you? He asked. (laughs) So he's implying that, hey, you're given a different message. That spirit that you're speaking isn't the spirit of the Lord. The spirit of the Lord's coming from me is basically what he's saying. Is Zedekiah telling the truth? Or is Zedekiah lying? Micaiah replied, you will find out on the day you go to hide in the inner room. The king of Israel then ordered, take Micaiah and send him back to Ammon, the ruler of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, this is what the king says. Put this fellow in prison and give him nothing but bread and water until I return safely. Micaiah declared, if you ever return safely, the Lord has not spoken through me. Then he added, mark my words, all you people. So that's the story. Does it, does you, did Micaiah break the commandments? Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Did he bear false witness? Or did he bear true witness? On the contrary, he, he presented the, the real origin of the truth, which was from God. These 400 prophets were claiming by, by reason of majority and democracy and in their agreement that they represented God, which was absolutely not true. So with these ideas in mind, are we going to approach it from a self-centered point of view? How can I protect me? Or are we going to promote, promote these things from what is going to honor God and protect others? Uh, do we follow God's law or do we follow man's regulations, rules? Well, I'm a psychiatrist. There are man-made rules, laws, which govern patient confidentiality. In addition, I've given my word and my promise to my patients to protect their confidentiality. Imagine your pastor comes to see me because he's got a problem with an addiction. Then one day I've been invited uh, to your city to do a, to do a series of uh, programs, but not at your church, at somebody else's church. But you come to my program and you ask me if I know Pastor so-and-so. And the only place I know him is my patient in my office. What do I do? How do I answer that? Do I say, I'm sorry, but medical ethics and rights of patient confidentiality, I cannot answer your question. <laughs> do I say, I have much to tell you, but you cannot not bear it? <laughs> do I say, oh, I've never met him outside my office? <laughs> do I say yes or no? Do I speak the truth or do I evade the truth, even mislead and suggest I actually don't know him when I clearly do. What do I do in the back? Please ask Dr. Jennings to speak on whether or not spirits lie under God's command. And I think you covered that, but maybe... We already did. Yes, of course spirits don't lie under God's command. Yeah. It was a metaphor. It was a parable to get a point across, but they were not the lying spirits coming from God. You were just asking. Yes. Let's go back to that question. Yes. So do I tell the truth or do I evade the truth and mislead in some way? To let the person... Not everybody is entitled to the truth. Oh. You would tell them, you would send the person's best interest. The truth is larger than that specific question. <clears throat> well, the question is, do you know Pastor so-and-so? You could, you could honestly say you had heard of him. 
<laughs> okay, so that, but the, the, the answer, though, I've heard of him, was designed to suggest I really don't know him. Telling the truth doesn't mean telling everything you know. You see? Telling the truth doesn't mean telling everything you know. Well, yeah, I know him. Well, where did you meet him? Next question. Where did you meet him? Could happen. That could be a conversational question. Chattanooga, what was he doing in Chattanooga? <laughs> so just say you know him on a professional basis. That's all you have to say. Or you can just say... Really? Really? Have you have you've ever been in the position I'm in? I promise you, there are certain questions or responses that you give tell that you're trying to hide something. Yeah. Why, why do you want to know? Well, what's your interest in this? Okay, it's like immediately flags go up. What's he hiding? Yeah. So if I say yes in a way that allows the idea that this pastor might be my patient, not only do I harm the pastor, but what if you were in marriage counseling with that pastor and now you discover he's actually getting help himself? Could your confidence in what he... And he's actually helping you. You're getting better. But now this idea is in your mind. Could you lose confidence in what he's telling you? And might it undermine what you hear in his sermons? Might you be tempted to gossip about him and spread rumors? If you spread those rumors, might other people be harmed by this? Hmm. So what is the principle? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Don't take actions that harm. Take actions that protect. To restore. So I can tell you, if you're my patient, I don't disclose that information. I don't disclose even subtly that that's true. If you're in the store and you see me, I won't acknowledge you. Now, I've had sometimes patients acknowledge me. I've been in the mall sometimes, and somebody goes, Hey, Dr. Jing, that's my psychiatrist. <laughs> it's happened, and they're free to do that. Okay, But, but I don't do that. Hey, hey, that, that's my patient. I, I don't do that. Yes. There's a, a much bigger principle here when someone, I learned this the hard way in the eighth grade, when a girl would ask me, what do you think of so-and-so? I grew up in a family where we never talked about people, good or bad. And I think that's a good principle, that we don't discuss the reputation of anyone, good or bad. I don't mean you could never mention things about people, but you don't analyze or evaluate others. Still doesn't help with my question, though. Because my question is not analyze, it's just do you know him? Do you know him? Can you get by with I don't know him on a personal basis? Again, it, it, see, do you notice how you, your minds are struggling? Mm-hmm. I don't know if you notice, but what you're doing, most of you, are trying to figure out a way you can lie by telling the truth. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. That's, true. That's what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Think about it. You're, 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 you're thinking about how you can evade the truth in a way that you can feel like you told the truth. <laughs> That's what you're actually doing right now. You know, that's deception. Well, how did you I just say, no, I don't know them. <laughs> or I might say that, or I might say, I'm not sure. Or I can't say whether I know him or not. I can't say. I can't disclose that information to you without written authorization and a consent form being signed. <laughs> if you get a consent from your pastor, then I can let you know that whether I know him or not. <laughs> that would be helpful. <laughs> but do you see, it's not always black and white, is it, in this world? 
And, and when, we're, when we're level four and below, we're primarily concerned with self. Am I going to do something that's going to get me in legal trouble, that's going to be a check mark in my record book that I'm going to have to ask forgiveness for, and if I don't, then God's going to have to punish me for it because I'm level four and below. I'm thinking of me, and I've got to protect me. Or am I thinking level five and above? I want to love and protect others. And I don't want to do anything that's going to injure another person. And if I disclose this information without permission, it's injurious to this person. Lots of people can be damaged by this. I can't disclose this. So I'm going to do as minimal as I can, take the, take the pathway that is, it is most likely not to, to, to um, be destructive to anybody because I have a responsibility to protect. And, and I would say this is one of those areas where Romans 14 comes to bear. Let every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. When you're in that situation, it'll be up to you to decide that. How you do. Judge not that you be not judged. But I would encourage you to really try to approach it from the level of love for others and love for God rather than simply, am I going to get in trouble if I do this? Am I going to be at that very self-referenced approach? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you love us so much. And we know in this world sometimes we're faced with situations that there isn't an explicit thus saith the Lord for, and we have to use judgment to apply principles. And we know that just like Rahab, that you look at the heart motive, not the specific action at that time, but the intent of the motive of the heart. And as long as we are living to honor you and love others, that, that you will cover over any shortcomings in our exact performance, Lord. We pray that you will um, transform us, give us the wisdom, give us the sermon and the circumstances we need them, and that we might glorify you and you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.